TBRI. 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 Trust-based relational intervention. TBRI is an attachment-based trauma-informed intervention that is designed to meet the complex needs of vulnerable children. TBRI uses empowering principles to address physical needs, connecting principles for attachment needs, and correcting principles to disarm fear-based behaviors. While TBRI is based on years of attachment, sensory processing, and neuroscience research, the heartbeat of TBRI is connection. Hello and welcome to the TBRI podcast. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 2. On this show, we talk all about trust-based relational intervention, or TBRI. We talk about different elements of the model itself, but also how TBRI is applied in various communities of care and practice. Today, we're sharing a conversation between our host, Sarah Mercado, and Dr. Jamie DeLuna, who is a research scientist here at the KPICD. Jamie has a long history with the Institute, which you'll get to hear a little bit about, and she is also certified in the Adult Attachment Interview, which is considered the gold standard of research-based measures of adult attachment styles. Now, this is a topic we are asked about most frequently, so grab a pen and take some notes on this one. Jamie is a wealth of knowledge about this important topic, and we are so grateful that she shared her wisdom on adult attachment with us today. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jamie. We're so thankful that you've joined us today and that you're giving us a little bit of time to share your vast knowledge about attachment with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Would you just take a second for our listeners and um, introduce yourself and share just maybe a little bit about your TBRI journey, including, you know, how'd you end up at the KPICD and in what capacity do you serve there? Definitely. So I am, uh, my title is research scientist, which sounds like I wear a light, white lab coat, but I don't. Uh, what I do for the most part are adult attachment interviews. So I talk to people about their childhoods. It's fascinating and I love it. And then I also have a role as an adjunct professor in our child development department. So I teach undergrad child development classes, which I also love. And actually, I have been with the Institute since, in some capacity, since 2003, I think, when I was an undergrad at TCU. I took a developmental psychology class from Dr. Cross and loved it. And I was walking down the hallway one day, and he was walking next to me after class. And he leaned over and he said, do you like kids? And I said, yes. (laughs) And he offered me a spot to help with what was then called the Developmental Research Lab. The DRL is what we called it. Uh, There was no institute yet. And so that's how I got started working with camps and learning from Dr. Cross and Dr. Purvis. And I went away to graduate school and then knew I wanted to come back and work here forever. So I've been here in a professional capacity since 2011. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I've never heard that story, (laughs) but I keep thinking about when, when we chatted with Casey, she talked about, um, the, that she like called Dr. Cross when she read about the camp and he was like, well, come on out tomorrow. And I think about how many people would just dream about like <laughs> walking out of class with Dr. Cross and him saying like, Hey, you want to join us on this journey? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. TBRI didn't even have the name TBRI yet. That was all later. It was just, we do summer camps with kids um, it was just forming. It w- it's, it's been fascinating to watch it all develop and become a thing and yeah. become something with a name and kind of a movement. It's been really, really neat to watch that unfold. Wow, that's really unbelievable. So um, you mentioned that you do the adult attachment interviews, um, which we're going to talk just a tiny bit about, not too much, but um so from in, in the beginning of your journey, there was obviously no adult attachment interview, right? Until now, when how many do you think you do a year? Oh, gosh. It's 12 times. I do about 12 to 15 a week. Oh, so my multiply goodness. that by 
you know, 51, 52. It's a lot. We, we do so many adult attachment interviews. I would venture to guess we have the largest data set of adult attachment interviews in the world. Wow. That's unbelievable. It, it really is. And so like, I think, of, I think back to the, like that hallway conversation. And then if you knew then, you know, where TBRI would end up and, you know, and, and that you'd be interviewing people from literally all over the globe. It's just, it's so exciting to, to think about like you in 2003 and Dr. Cross in 2003 and, you know, some others on our team were around then too. And it's just, it's really exciting to think about where, where we are now. It is. It is. And it actually reminds me of another story about Dr. Cross. I don't know if you want to hear this or not. We most definitely want to hear it. So so when I was an undergrad with Dr. Cross, obviously I studied attachment. And then I this is this is just a cool story about his wisdom because he's such a wise person, which we all know that, but this is some interesting evidence for that. So the woman who I did my PhD under, she's at UT Dallas, her name's Margaret Owen, also a wise soul, a wonderful person. And when I was a senior applying to graduate schools, I met with Dr. Cross just for some guidance and he wrote my recommendation letters and Karen Purvis also wrote recommendation letters, which now that sounds like such a cool thing back then. It was just like, Oh, well it's Karen writing recommendation letter, but I met with Dr. Cross and I was telling him all these different places I was going to apply to go get my PhD. And he looked at me after I was finished and he said, right, but you'll go work with Margaret Owen. And I said, okay, but I'm looking at all of these places and I don't know where I want to go yet. And he just nodded and he was like, right, but you'll work with Margaret. And a couple weeks later, I went to visit Margaret Owen and I was like, okay, he was right. I'm going to go work with Margaret Owen, who has also <laughs> studied attachment. Um, and, and she actually offered me the opportunity to get trained in the adult attachment interview. So not knowing that I was going to do this for my career, I went through this training and it was so incredible. And I just latched onto it. And now I want to do the attachment interviews forever. And like you said, it's so fascinating. I've interviewed people from all over the world. I never imagined I'd be talking to people who grew up in Haiti or South Africa or South Korea or Colombia. It's so interesting. It's, it's, it is so fascinating. So um, on the, the subject of attachment, um, tell us, like, just high-level thinking um, and, and maybe language that makes a whole lot of sense to me, which is not PhD language, spoiler alert. Um, what What is attachment and how is it formed? Good question. So I kind of like to think about it in two different ways. So the first way is the elevator speech version. Essentially, attachment is this idea that our parents, our primary caregivers, or whoever raises us, they teach us how to do relationship. They're our model of relationship from the time that we're born and they have us forevermore when we're in their care. Um, And this is whether they know it or not, they're modeling what relationship is like for us. And so we, without knowing it, use that model to then approach other relationships throughout our lives. That's what we know about relationship. And it, it really is, attachment is formed by patterns, things that happen over and over again in these relationships. The way we approach babies, the way we meet their needs, connect with them emotionally or not, the way we respond to them or not, it all happens in a pattern. Um, and their patterns, like I said, we aren't even aware of most of the time. So actually, by the time a baby is about a year or a year and a half old, they've got this pattern of relationship pegged with their caregiver. They know what it's like, um, which kind of leads me to the other way that I like to describe attachment, which is a little bit more in depth. But attachment, Dr. Purvis used to describe attachment as a dance, and she was really on to something because it is a dance. Um, it's, it's a dance in which the child learns the best way, the best strategy to stay close to their caregiver. So in healthy attachment, which most of the population has, which is a good thing, a baby learns from a very early age that, you know, when I cry, a loving caregiver, a loving parent meets my need, and then I calm down. 
So the best way to bring my caregiver close to me is to cry. And then I can calm down because I know they'll meet my need. So think about attachment as the baby's best way to stay close to their caregiver. Uh, you know, I've never heard it said like that. That's that's really, really cool. I like that a lot because, you know, I mean, we'll talk so much more in the other episodes about, you know, voice and and how that's formed. But that I really love that. The best way to stay close to my caregiver. How, how fascinating. Yeah. And yet so simple too. Um, and I love that you talked about patterns and, and I like, can you give an example of what you mean by that? Yeah. So I think probably the best example to give there is just the, the example of healthy attachment in kind of an, I, I, I'm using air quotes, an ideal caregiving situation. Uh, when a baby is born and needs to express a need, they cry. And so in most ideal situations, the parent then comes and meets the need. They're saying yes to this child. Yes, I will change your diaper. I will feed you. I will snuggle you. I will hold you. I will rock you. I'm meeting your need. And they do this over and over and over again throughout the first year or two of life. And so it develops a pattern. And so the baby learns the best way to stay close to my caregiver is to cry. Because when I cry, that means something. I'm so important that when I cry, my parent comes and meets my need in a loving way. Um, and that's the basis for self-regulation. It's the basis for self, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-efficacy. It doesn't mean that if we're in the shower and we don't hear our baby cry a couple times, that it's going to ruin it. A pattern is just <laughs> most of the time. It's not every time. Nobody's perfect. It's just most of the time. <laughs> that's good to know because, you know, I mean, my, my girls are in their teens now, but sometimes I think back and um, wonder. <laughs> You know, when somebody suggested do it this way and I gave it a shot for three minutes, did I hurt my kid? It's, <laughs> you know, I'm struggling that, with that in my home right now. I have a nine-month-old who is learning to become an independent sleeper. And there was a moment about a week ago where I didn't hear her cry. And I, I think she cried for about five or six minutes in the night. And I was so worried because you do, you get in those moments and you think, oh, this is going to be a core memory. This is going to be a foundational experience. <laughs> and I texted a friend about it and she said, Jamie, serial killers are not formed from five minutes of unattended crying. <laughs> and I thought, thank goodness. <laughs> and you're so right because the pattern is usually I hear her and usually I respond to her. It's okay right. that I miss it one time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and we're, we're even going to talk about a, a little bit more about some of our um, mishaps in just a few minutes. But um, so that helps so much because I think we can, um, you know, we can make attachment as complicated as we want to. Right. Like, I mean, sure. we can use all the big words and and um, they're certainly important. But as a parent, if I know that that. I'm looking for a pattern that basically says your voice works, right? Like you cry, I show up and meet your need. Um, that really simplifies it in my mind. And and then to have that extra layer of like, because it's a pattern, I, I do get to take a shower. And if that means five minutes, it's okay. The baby's going to be okay. Like our attachment isn't spoiled because of, uh, because I took a shower. Um, so I, I really like the, the the way you laid out like the simplicity of that. And for there, there are so, so many ways that we could explain attachment, but for the purposes of this podcast, I really appreciate that. Um, why? So how is this important to the work at the KPICD and TBRI? You just said that we do probably more adult attachment interviews than, than anyone worldwide. And we could probably put, um, in our, our resources tab a little bit more about um, that process and the AAI so we don't have to go into great detail here. But um, why, why is understanding my attachment style important to uh, TBRI and my ability to do it? Yeah, attachment really is the heart and soul of TBRI. It underlines or underlies every principle that TBRI has. And if you think about even the name of TBRI, trust, that's a relationship, relational 
relationship. Attachment keeps everything working and TBRI wouldn't work without a healthy relationship. Dr. Purvis used to say that you can only heal relational trauma with a healthy relationship. So for our kids that we serve that have experienced trauma in relationship, the best way to heal that is with a healthy relationship, with healthy attachment. Um, And the other thing is relationships are dyadic. They involve two people. That's part of why we think it's so important that adults who learn TBRI take a look at their own attachment history, not just the attachment of the child. Because as the adult in a relationship with a child, I have to know what I'm bringing to the table from a relationship standpoint, from a history standpoint, so that I can be mindful and aware about how I'm approaching this child so that I can have self-awareness about what I'm doing. Um, Another way to say that is so I can know when I'm screwing it up and when I'm doing it really well, right? So so it takes both of those pieces, understanding the, the attachment relationship from the standpoint of the child, but also from ourselves. Oh, I think that's so good. And I know that uh, for me personally, the AAI was absolutely, or the adult attachment interview was absolutely pivotal in my TBRI journey. It, it, it was the moment when I decided that I would, I would take the leap and do something to become healthier emotionally so that I could meet the needs of kids instead of just um, corralling them as I used to. So um, (laughs) it is so it is so important. And one of the things I say often about uh, what we're doing with TBRI is that we're really trying to change the adults and the the adult mindset, because for a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but certainly for me, my experience came from like a very consequence reward driven um, way of of um, interacting with kids and those that, that I worked with. And so, it, it, you know, I, I came with that. I was raised that way. And then that's what I was doing. But needs weren't being met. You know, skills weren't being taught. It was just we were just housing and, and doing what we knew to do. We weren't we weren't doing anything wrong at the time. It was just what we knew. Um, but the AI was the pivot point for me to be able to say, like, maybe I need to do something different. Maybe it's not the kids that need to change. Maybe I need to change. And so I know uh, it, it was just a really huge turning point for me. So I, I think you get to be a part of a lot of people's turning points. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. And I think you hit on an important point, which is understanding why we do the things we do. Mm -hmm. in caregiving, um, whether that's as a parent or a caregiver in some other capacity for children, is Mm -hmm. the reason because our parents did it this way, because we've always done it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not always the best reason. Sometimes that's okay if if it's a healthy thing that -hmm. our parents did and we're continuing. But if it's not, it's really important to evaluate why we're doing something and and investigate, is there a better way to do this? Is there a healthier way to do this? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate uh, one of the things that Dr. Cross talks a lot about is that this is a huge journey. Like, it, you know, you, I, I was unable to flip the switch of 30 some odd years of being parented this way and then parenting and then working with kids in this way and, and do something completely different overnight. It really has been an evolution of, of understanding more about myself, the why behind my own behavior and then really digging into a place where I was able to be vulnerable enough to really meet kids' needs instead of just, you know, kind of telling them what to do. Yeah. Um, so as we as we think about attachment, and we've talked to, you know, just we understand that a good way to learn your attachment style is the adult attachment interview. But can you tell us a little bit about the attachment styles and how does each one um, impact our ability to do relationships as a whole? Yeah. So I've kind of already alluded to one of the attachment styles. I I refer to it as healthy attachment. The technical name for it is secure attachment. And that was what I talked about with a pattern of response from a caregiver that is consistent and warm and meeting the needs of the child, not only their instrumental needs, so like the physical needs, hunger, thirst, being cold, but also the emotional needs, um, being scared, needing to talk about emotions. The the secure parent can meet both sides of those needs consistently. And so as the child of that relationship, the child learns, 
I must be really important. I must be the coolest child on the planet because this adult is meeting my needs consistently and warmly and they care about my emotions. And so if you think about that as a long-term outcome, this is the adult who feels capable in their lives. This is the adult who feels comfortable giving care right? Because they've received it, but also receiving care. They feel worthy of receiving care from others. This is the adult who can ask for help when they need it. They don't feel like they have to go it alone. Um, But also this adult feels autonomous to do things on their own, to venture out into the world and take healthy risks. Um, That's secure attachment and that's healthy. And if you look at the general population, about 60 to 70% of people have secure attachment, which is great. That's hopeful, right? Most of us are going to have that. Um, There are different types of what we call insecure attachment. There's still patterns. They're just not as healthy as secure attachment. Before I even describe those, I want to say that These things are not set in stone. These things can change. We as parents and caregivers can help them change to more secure attachment. So know that it's not, uh, if you have insecure attachment, you have it forever. We're We're not doomed with insecure attachment. But one of those types um, in childhood is called avoidant attachment. And as an adult, it's called dismissing attachment. They're referring to the same pattern. Okay. So this comes from a caregiving history that oftentimes is very good at meeting instrumental needs. So this is the parent who is really, really good at making lunch every day or coming to all the child's games or events or extracurricular activities. They're really good at those kind of physical instrumental things, but it's not quite as comfortable in the emotional realm for this parent. So this parent might have a tough time or not feel as comfortable sitting down and talking about negative emotions with a child or with another adult. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not a comfortable space for them, oftentimes because they didn't have that as a child. Um, And so if you think about what I said earlier about attachment being the child's best strategy to stay close to their caregiver, this child learns my caregiver isn't so comfortable with those emotional things, so I have to deal with those myself. I've got to kind of push them down. I've got to keep them in. I've got to look cool, calm, and collected on the outside because that's the best way to keep my caregiver close. If I let that stuff out, they're not comfortable, and they tend to shy away from that. Um, so that's that's avoidant dismissing. Yeah. So when I did my AAI and uh, Jim said, you know, Sarah, seems like you fall in line with dismissive. I I feel like as a really great dismissive, I said, I don't think so. I have a feeling. And (laughs) he said, yeah, you're supposed to have more than one. Um, And and I thought, well, I am really, listen, if my kids want to play soccer, they're going to look good. Like, right. They're going to have all the right shoes and the shin guards and the little outfits and all this stuff. But, you know, if, if there is a need for some emotional support, if somebody hurts their feelings, then I started to recognize really quickly, I wanted that to go away as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So whatever we need to do, like, do we need to go get a treat after the game? Do we need to like, because I don't want to deal with the emotions of this moment. It just felt too hard for me. And and quite frankly, I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I was like, these are big emotions. I know that when I feel them, I just choose not to and move on. And so part of my huge journey was like, learning to sit with my girls when they were in distress emotionally and not move that along too quickly. Right. And so. I- yeah. And, and people who are avoidant dismissing are really, really good at coming up with the solutions and fixing. Like if you have a problem, I will fix it for you. Mm-hmm. I will find the answer, but let's skip past the emotion. We don't yeah. want to get stuck in that. No. It's almost <laughs> like. Don't make me. <laughs> This feeling of like, if I acknowledge it, I'm going to get stuck there forever, right? Mm -hmm. It's this like anxiety almost of, oh, no, we can't do that because we'll get stuck there. So let's just move past it and find a solution. And it sounds so counterintuitive, but in the helping profession, in kind of the field that we work in, there's a higher incidence of people with avoidant dismissing attachment pattern. 
in part because we're finding the solutions, right? We're helping these kids. We're helping people. Um, we're not going to get stuck in the emotion. We're going to do a fundraiser, do a drive, or mm-hmm. you know, plan an organizational event, or start a nonprofit. We're going to find the solution. Right. Well, and if I if I am, you know, when I when I started my career, I worked um, with teen boys, and if I were to go through and read every file and read all of the details. I mean, it would almost make you collapse of Mm -hmm. of what these kids have been through. And so I think like being dismissive in that moment without an ability or an understanding of how to manage emotions, um, I found to be really helpful. I will say now that I've, you know, been working hard at it, I'm realizing that actually just feeling the emotions and sitting in that space for a little bit and, and, even sitting with, you know, kids when they're in, you know, some sort of emotional distress is, is really so much easier because everybody just feels better when it's done. You know, so I I remember the first time I sat with one of my daughters when um, she was just crying and I just sat with her. I I mean, I was literally in my head saying, just be with her, just be with her. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to do anything. You just let her cry and tell her you are sorry she's hurting. And I was sorry she was hurting, but I didn't know how to feel all that. And and we got to the other side and we like hugged it out and she felt better. And I felt like I had accomplished something because I sat with her in the emotions, but I didn't, the, the distress over that for me was gone when it was over versus before mm-hmm. that I would have been thinking about how do I make sure this doesn't happen again, you know, and fixing it. And so I, I would just want to encourage people that, sometimes the feelings aren't as scary as, as we've been taught they are. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that the adult attachment interview is really helpful for people because it's Mm -hmm. just an opportunity to talk to, I mean, sometimes just to vent. Um, And as the interviewer, I'm not fixing it. I'm not saying good job or you did that right. Or you didn't, it's your story and you're sharing it with me. And there is healing in that. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and you guys don't really move on until the person <laughs> says, you know, answers a question to right. some degree, which is um, really powerful. Well, we, pro- we probably don't want to talk too much about that. But um, okay, so what's our next attachment? Style? Okay, so the next one um, in childhood, it's called ambivalent. And as an adult, it is called preoccupied. And I actually come from this attachment category. So I have a professional interest, but also a personal interest in it. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the most complicated one to understand. It comes from a caregiving history that is more inconsistent. So sometimes the parent is really, really good at meeting that emotional need, and sometimes they're not. Um, The example I always give, just because it's really clear to understand, is let's pretend like a child is being raised with an alcoholic parent. Now, it doesn't always mean that if a child is raised with an alcoholic parent that their attachment style is preoccupied. That's not true. I'm just giving this as an example. But the inconsistency is almost inherent in that addiction, because if the parent is drinking, um, they're not going to be emotionally there for the child. But if they're sober, they might be. They might be more consistent in being emotionally present for the child. But as a whole, it's inconsistent because sometimes they're there and respond and sometimes they're not. So if you think about the child and their strategy to stay close to that caregiver, the child almost has to become needy. So this is the child that gets really upset a lot and has trouble calming down even when the parent's there. This is the child that makes things about them because they need the parent there all the time. And the reason for that is because as a child, it's really confusing. Is my parent going to respond to me this time or not? Mm. I don't know. So I need to make sure that I am in their attention, that they see me here. So I'm going to get really upset and stay really upset because if this is the time they're available... I want them to see me. I want to get that attention, right? I'm not sure if it is or not, but if it is, I'm going to make sure they see me. Um, so that fascinating. It, what is it? Can you can you share like um, maybe a uh, a behavior that a, an adult might do in that regard? Like I can see it really clearly with a, a child and a caregiver, 
But how does that transition into adult relationships? Mm, yeah, good. So I'll give it. I'll give an example as a parent, and then I'll give an example that doesn't have to do with kids. So the the example as a parent, and I'm actually going to go ahead and use one from my own life, is <laughs> um, because of our caregiving history, we have a tendency, without realizing it and without meaning to, to make things about us because that served us well. It was adaptable in childhood. And so as as a parent now, I have two girls. And as a parent, I am exhausted at the end of the day, not only because I've been parenting, but because I work full time. And so at the end of the day, usually, and by the end of the day, I mean like when my girls come home from school and we're just hanging out, I'm so tired. And I just want to chill out and play Candy Crush on my phone and not talk to anyone. But guess what? My kids want attention and they want my undivided attention and they want to play and they want to be loud and they want to do all of these things that I feel like I don't have the energy for. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes what my instinct to do is to do is to set my six-year-old up with her iPad and let her watch her iPad and put the baby in her little activity center so that I can have 10 minutes to myself. Mm-hmm. Which if, if that's all I told you, it sounds avoidant because I am avoiding these interactions. And this is part of the reason why ambivalent preoccupied is hard to understand because it's complicated. So here's what happens in my brain. I set that up for them and then I sit down and open Candy Crush on my phone and I feel guilty. I realize what I'm doing, I feel guilty about it. And so I reverse course and I go get my six-year-old who has happily settled into playing on her iPad and having a snack. And I go get the baby who is now confused because I just put her in her activity center and I bring them into the living room and I try and engage with them. I'm making it about me because I felt guilty, right? I'm changing what they are interacting with, what they are concentrating on and making it about me. I am ready to interact right now. So let's interact. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. I I haven't I don't think I've ever heard that it said like that before. And it's just so clear. That's really great. Good. Okay. So here, here are some examples as not a parent, just as an adult who comes from this attachment style. So we are the people and we, meaning ambivalent slash preoccupied, we overthink things. We ruminate. Um, Recently, actually on an AI, somebody gave me the best analogy I've ever heard for this, which is if you have a Mac, you know, the little spinning wheel of death, the little colored wheel Mm -hmm. that spins. Yeah. That's our brain all the time. It's constantly (laughs) spinning and ruminating and thinking about everything, every conversation we've had, every way we might've offended someone. So I am the person where if I text a friend and they don't text me back, I immediately think I did something, right? I'm going back through my texts and going, did I offend them? Did I say something that might've been mean, that they took the wrong way? Did I make them mad? I'm constantly analyzing and making sure that I didn't do something wrong. And I do it so much <laughs> that it's not adaptive, right? <laughs> I'm doing it because I don't want to be a jerk, mm-hmm. but it's too much. It's way too much. It occupies way too much space in my brain. Right. Right. Wow. You know, it's so fascinating because, um, you know, those of us that with some more dismissive tendencies um, can feel overwhelmed mm-hmm. by um, some of the preoccupied behaviors. <laughs> and so it's stuff like that where like I can see being like, oh, man, getting to the end of a day or two or a week. And, and, and like one of my frustrations with my phone is that I want to be able to mark a text as unread. <laughs> <laughs> because I will completely forget that text even happened. And it's, it has nothing to do with anything other than I just forgot about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I got distracted. And so it's interesting to think about like the perspective of other people and, <laughs> and cre- creating some felt safety and relationships when you understand that dynamic, because, you know, when you said in, in the parenting example, and you said you made it all about you, I mean, I think about you as being so selfless, and so giving to others and would never know that's what's ruminating in your head. Um, And so I think it's a really tricky balance when I I would imagine it's a tricky balance when you're in that place of, I mean, you do give so much, right? Like you're, you literally listen to people's stories all day long and Mm -hmm. and are a safe place for them. And, and that is the, like, like 
self-focused is never what I would take. And so I would think that would almost be a contradiction within somebody's head, especially if they're in a giving profession when in, inside they're constantly trying to kind of tame that beast of, right. of feeling better about things. And Yeah. And I think at some level, a lot of us who come from this ambivalent preoccupied attachment pattern recognize it. And so Mm -hmm. that's our greatest fear, (laughs) or at least it is for me, is to come off as selfish or thinking about myself too much. Um, and, And the other thing I'll say is that these aren't purposeful behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't ruminate in my head all the time because I'm trying to. That's one of the fascinating and frustrating things about insecure attachment patterns is that most of the time we're not aware that we're doing them. And Mm -hmm. even when we are, they're really tough to control because that's our quote training from our childhood. I've been been training on this attachment pattern for 37 years. I'm really good at it now. Right, yeah. (laughs) Me too. In fact, you know, it's one of the things um, that constantly circles in my head because I like to say I'm like, we didn't talk about earn secure, but we will. But Mm -hmm. I actually like to say I'm recovering dismissive more than earn secure because I sure do latch onto that dismissive (laughs) when when I am tired or when I just, you know, sometimes it it is more comfortable to not feel. In fact, it happened just last night with my daughter. And so um, I I think the idea of, of how do we move forward is a really fascinating one. But um, before we, we keep moving, one more attachment style. Right. So the three attachment styles that I've already described are called organized. And that's because they have a really clear pattern. Um, if you give me 10 kids or parents with these attachment styles, I can pretty reliably predict things about their behavior, the way they approach relationships. But there's one attachment style that doesn't fit a pattern. It's called disorganized. Mm -hmm. And this comes from caregiving histories or situations that are one of two things or both. So one is the caregiver is frightening to the child. So this might be a situation where the child is experiencing abusive behavior from the caregiver or the child is experiencing neglect from the caregiver. Or these also come from situations where the caregiver themselves is frightened. So for example, if a caregiver is in an abusive relationship, the caregiver is frightened in their situation. And so that influences the way they parent the child or both. The, The child might be experiencing frightening behavior from the caregiver and also the caregiver is frightened as they are parenting. So in these relationships, If you remember, I told you that attachment is the the child's best way to stay close to their caregiver. In disorganized attachment, there's no clear pattern. There's no clear strategy. Um, Each day might be really different. Each day might be a different level of scary. Um, And so the child doesn't have a clear strategy for staying close to the caregiver. If you think about what that feels like in the brain of the child, it's, it's, this, it's these two contrasting ideas, right? My caregiver is supposed to be the one who is protecting me and responding to me, but they're also the one who might be scaring me, frightening me. Um, and those two things are not compatible. So it's, it's by definition, disorganized. Um, if you look at kind of the long-term implications of that, it's almost the complete opposite of secure attachment. The secure, healthy attachment says, I'm worth responding to. I, I must be important. I, I'm self-confident because I have a loving caregiver responding to me. The converse is true for the child who is disorganized in their attachment. There's no one responding to me or they respond to me in a really harsh manner. I must not be that important. Um, I must not be worth a lot, or I feel invisible because no one's ever responding to me in cases of neglect. Okay. So I just want to clarify a little bit because, um, you know, when we talk about the dismissive and the preoccupied, um, there, there are definitely instances of not responding. Um, and so I, I want to just make sure that because, you know, I think a lot of parents hear these things and they get into this like huge fear state of how badly we've messed up our kids. Um, <laughs> and so I want to I just want to could you just explain the distinction between, you know, a dismissive person or a preoccupied 
you know, adult with their child, you know, being unresponsive to emotional needs or, you know, because of addiction, not responding similarly every time to create, you know, that kind of pattern and the disorganized attachment. Yeah. So, so no, that's a good question. In the organized styles of attachment, so secure, avoidant, dismissive, ambivalent, preoccupied, there is a pattern of response. So in secure attachment, it's really consistent, response, responding to instrumental needs, but also emotional needs. In avoidant dismissing attachment, it might not be as emotionally present, but the parents are really responding to those instrumental needs. Like you said, my kids had the best soccer clothes. They had the best shoes. Um, mm-hmm. These are the parents who always have food on the table. Those, those physical needs are always taken care of. In ambivalent preoccupied attachment, um, it's there enough that the child wants it and, and, and can anticipate it and knows that there's some kind of pattern there. Sometimes I do get this response, but sometimes I don't. So how can I change my behavior so that I get the most out of that, so that I get it more? Um, in disorganized attachment, the response is there so little that there's not even enough experience to create a pattern. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's super helpful. I always, when I think of disorganized, and maybe this is, just sounds really terrible, but I always think of a, a young child like falling or getting hurt and going to the parent for help and getting hurt by the parent. So like this, the same person that's supposed to care for me is is also potentially the same person that's harming me. And for right. some reason that paints a picture in my mind that helps me see beyond, you know, my inability to, uh, hug or not hug, but, you know, really dig into emotions with my girls when they were young before I did my work. And so I don't right. know if that's a, a good example, but it's what kind of comes to my head that it know, is. And know. it makes me think too, uh, another way to kind of add a layer of complexity, but also explanation onto this is if I'm a researcher looking at attachment, someone I'm looking at children's attachment style or adults attachment style and you can be one of the organized styles and then also disorganized, which is, is a different animal in adulthood. It's called something different. It's a different concept. So let's just focus on kids. You could have a child who has a, a predominantly ambivalent attachment style and they are also disorganized. So let me give you an example. Let's go with the example I gave of the ambivalent attachment where the parent is um, addicted to alcohol. So sometimes the parent's really there for the child emotionally, sometimes they're not. Let's use your example of going to the parent when the child is hurt. If the parent is under the influence of alcohol and can't respond to the child emotionally, let's say they're just passed out. So the child has to take care of it themselves. Mm-hmm that child might not be disorganized because the parent's not frightening them. They're not hurting them, right? Versus the example you gave of disorganized where, let's say, same situation, the parent's under the influence of alcohol and they're not passed out and they're an angry drunk and that child goes to them when they're hurt and they get hit upside the head, right? That's a different experience than, oh, my parent just can't respond to me right now. So thinking about... um you know, the disorganized child and uh, as they grow up, how would that experience inform or um, impact my relationships as an adult? The answer to that is greatly. Um, It's a good question. And disorganization as a child goes hand in hand with trauma. If you have a disorganized attachment style as a child, you have experienced trauma. And so if you as an adult have not resolved that and you haven't processed it and worked through it and understand how it impacts you and how you approach relationships, you can think of it as almost a barrier to any any relationship that you have. When I was first at the Institute and Dr. Purvis used to speak during TBRI for the most part, which is fun to think back on and kind of hard to imagine now, but when she would talk about the impacts of childhood trauma on adults. She would hold her hands up in front of her face. So if you do like jazz hands, like big jazz hands, (laughs) and you hold those up in front of your eyes, that's my trauma as a child if I have not processed it. And so everything I see, everything I do as an adult 
I'm looking through the lens of this trauma that I haven't dealt with, that I haven't resolved. So everything I do is influenced by that. Um, Mm -hmm. It might be really easy to trigger, maybe a sound or a smell, something I'm not even aware of could trigger my trauma response and trigger those neurotransmitters in my brain to go to fight, flight, or freeze, to go to a panic attack versus if I've processed that trauma, if I've dealt with it, it doesn't mean it's gone. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it means I'm more prepared to handle when it's triggered. It means I know how it affects me. It means I can anticipate those things and I have tools to calm myself down, to deal with it. I have safe people I can talk to. Okay. Okay. That's so good. Thank you so much for that. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit, but not a whole lot. What does it, what does it mean when we say earn secure? Mm, good question. And it kind of goes back to what I said at the very beginning of talking about the attachment styles, that these, these patterns aren't set in stone. Thank goodness, right? Because right. those of us who come from insecure attachment or disorganized attachment would be doomed for life. Um, but we're not. That's the great news about all of this. Mm-hmm. Earned secure is a term that actually comes from the adult attachment interview. And it refers to those of us who did not have secure attachment in childhood, but have, quote, earned it as an adult. We've processed our childhood histories, traumatic or not. We've processed the insecure patterns in our childhood, and we understand how they've influenced us. Again, doesn't mean they're gone forever. It just means we're aware of them. And so when we talk about our childhood, for example, in the adult attachment interview, the way we talk about it is more secure than if we hadn't done that work. So maybe if we had a really, really tough relationship with one of our parents, we talk about it in a forgiving way. Um, We've handled it and we've done some healing in that relationship with our parent. Maybe if we came from a really avoidant, dismissing childhood, we have uh, shifted from uh, pushing all of those negative things down and pretending they're not there to acknowledging them and saying, yeah, this was really tough as a child. I acknowledge that now. Um, It's actually earned secure is an interesting, interesting thing because it used to be in the adult attachment interview that when you looked at the different interviews, you delineated whether or not they were earned secure. So was this person secure all along or were, did they have insecure attachment and then they became secure as an adult? They earned it. And now what we know from research is that the outcomes aren't really that different. If you're secure as an adult, you're secure. Um, the journey is important, but the outcomes are the same. The, the person who has earned their security functions just as well as the person who was secure all along. They're just as successful in relationships as the person who's been secure all along. And I think it really has important implications for doing that personal journey and doing that personal work. Yeah. I mean, I think you just gave so much hope because I know that, you know, a lot of times, you know, as especially parents, learn about attachment after their, you know, kids attachment has been formed, they can feel a whole lot of guilt about that. I know I did for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I've, I started my journey long after their attachment was, was formed. Um, And so what, what would you say to encourage parents as they learn more and as they're, you know, processing that guilt and and the opportunities they have um, still with their kids? I mean, the tongue in cheek answer is that we're all going to screw up our kids in different ways. (laughs) I mean, if if we all knew this stuff from when our kids were little, we'd just mess it up in some other way. I'm joking, but there really is truth to that. Right. So like I knew all this stuff before I had kids and I know intimately when I am doing it wrong. I have yelled the phrase use your words more like more times than I would ever care to admit in my house. <laughs> I even have the TBRI tip sheets on my refrigerator and I still mess it up. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things Dr. Cross talks about a lot that I think is really powerful is this idea of rupture and repair. Um, he, I, I find myself saying this in my head so many times, but it's better to err and repair than to never err at all. When we do those insecure things with our kids that come from our own histories or being stressed out or having our buttons pushed or all of the above, 
we're going to mess it up. We just are. But the way we can do it differently than what our parents did is we can repair it. We can go back and say, I'm really sorry. I did that wrong. Let me try it again. I need a redo. Um, I've talked to so many people in the adult attachment interview who say, I didn't even know adults could apologize when I was a kid. Because not because our parents were trying to screw us up, but because a lot of times they didn't know there wasn't this knowledge of child development. They were just doing what their parents did and what their parents did and what their parents did. But we have that benefit of knowing this stuff and we can go back and repair it. And I think what goes along with that is a lot of self-forgiveness and grace for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, A mantra that we've been using a lot in our house is I'm still learning. Um, And you can use that on both sides of the relationship with a child, right? There are so many times where I say to my six-year-old, you know what? I am still learning to be a mom. Can you believe that? I have never been a mom to a six-year-old before ever. I'm still learning. And then she'll say, I'm still learning to be a six-year-old. And you know what? We're learning it together. And that's okay. Yeah. But it just gives me so much hope. I know I'll, I'll often say when people are feeling bad that, you know, um, the, the gift I think I can give my kids now is a, a nice, um, sizable amount of money for the therapy they're going to need and B is, um, is the gift of being able to have a mom that even though I couldn't do it before, will sit with them and their feelings now mm-hmm. and the gift that that's going to be to, to their kids, but, but also just in their daily relationships. Thank you so much for your time. I love the idea of, um, you know, we get a redo on our attachment. And I love the idea that, you know, whatever happened um, as the adults in my life when I was a kid were, were doing, I don't have to be stuck there. And I actually get to really enjoy um, understanding feelings and, and understanding relationships in a much deeper and more profound way. Um, and a lot of that is, is, probably because of what happened in 2003 when you first showed up at the Institute. (laughs) It's exciting to think about how many, how many lives were changed now because of all that early work. So I'm grateful for your time today and that you walked us through this in such a palatable, um, non-scary way, which sometimes attachment (laughs) can feel scary. It's a lot. Well, I appreciate you having me. It's fun to talk about. I love talking about it. The TBRI podcast is produced by the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. To learn more about TBRI and the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit child.tcu.edu slash podcast.